You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. But how can we expect the men who profit by an extortionate tariff to join in the crusade for the reduction of that tariff? We believe that the tariff must be reformed by those who have suffered from it, not by those who have profited by it. Next to Smoot-Hawley, which is remembered maybe because it's closer to modern times than any other big tariff bill, I think Payne Aldridge is the most significant, and it is the signature piece of infamous legislation of the presidency of William Howard Taft, and crucial to understanding that president. We're going to talk a bit about him, his presidency that he probably didn't really want to happen. The first thing to understand is that the Republican Party had always been in favor of high tariffs. It is protection of industry. This goes back to their roots as essentially the reformation of the Whig Party. And the Whig was a party, was a high tariff party. There were always some exceptions, um, particularly Southern Whigs, that might not be in support of those tariffs. But generally speaking, that was the way the parties played out. In support of tariffs, in support of manufacturing, Two things happen as you get to the turn of the century. And one is that there's an increasing awareness and realization of trusts that some companies are just so large and these holding companies that own other companies in complex webs and that tariffs, by driving up prices, hurt consumers and make people who own manufacturers very rich. In the episode on Reed Smoot, we talked a bit about Grover Cleveland's position on that. And this is where figures of the 19th century, get, it gets enormously complex when trying to decide where they fit into politics today. Are they liberal or conservative or that sort of thing? And Grover Cleveland on a lot of things like the money supply, not wanting it to become inflationary and not wanting to spend government money on relief for people, say, in, in emergencies. See, on all those issues, he's he's pretty conservative. As New York governor, he vetoes a bill that would mandate that the train line charge a lower fare to working men. And, you know, this is something that really angered constituents in New York and hurt him uh, during his presidential runs. But on the issue of tariff, he sided with the little person or the consumer, uh, if you will, in that he noted that in a tariff, there's a price push up even if the person doesn't have any exposure to imports. Now, we always think of, oh, tariff is a tax on imports. No big deal. That's not going to affect no con- more consumers. No, it absolutely would. 
It's not just the people who have access to those products, but it allows the manufacturers without competition to price upwards and to have that price. So that's one thing that's occurring by the time you get to the turn of century. This argument's starting to win a bit, and it's particularly with the issues of trust. And Theodore Roosevelt as president is thoroughly conflicted on the idea of tariffs. The second issue is that America is growing. We are competing internationally. We have a fleet being sent around the world by the time Theodore Roosevelt's president comes back when Taft is president, the Great White Fleet. You know, we're kind of showing off our international prowess, and yet we have all these tariffs protecting our industries in America. And American companies want to sell products abroad. And this starts to bubble up in the 1880s, stronger in the 1890s. And by the time you get to the turn of the century, there's a movement even within the Republican Party to start to lower tariffs. And that culminates in the platform of 1908 when, when Taft is nominated. There is an important difference between a revenue tariff and a tariff levied purely for protection. The Democratic candidate, once again, is William Jennings Bryan. Now, he had run in 1896, so then he was in his 30s. A revenue tariff is so framed that it will raise the needed revenue, and you stop when you get enough. And then he had run again in 1900. They skipped over him in 1904 to run a more conservative candidate. A protective tariff may be so framed that a heavy burden will be laid on the people and little revenue collected, and you never know when to stop. One of the funny things that Republicans counter the Bryan uh, campaign with is, vote for Taft now. You can vote for Bryan anytime. <laughs> the Democrats had run him three times already. The revenue tariff of 1846 was so satisfactory that after it had been in operation for 10 years, the first Republican platform the platform of 1856 did not mention protection. Now he's back, and he's got a new campaign slogan. He's not worried about silver money as much anymore. Now he's going after government by privilege and has a campaign slogan, Shall the People Rule? When the war began between the states, the tariff was raised for the purpose of increasing the revenue. And when the war was over, it was continued on the ground that the infant industry needed protection for a few years until they could stand upon their feet. But in a little while, these infants were not only able to stand upon their own feet, but to walk all over everybody else's feet. They're covering a lot of bases here. But essentially, they see 1908. Theodore Roosevelt's been in two terms. Tariffs are a big issue that he wasn't able to resolve. He's kind of dodged the issue. The last revision in tariffs was the Dingley Bill of 1897 during William McKinley's term. Prior to that, it was the Wilson Tariff Reduction during Grover Cleveland's term. And prior to that, the McKinley Bill, which um, made him infamous and famous, uh, McKinley. Brian's going to be a low-tariff campaigner. It's a strong argument. They want to gut that argument from the Democrats. And this is how it reads. The Republican Party declares unequivocally for a revision of the tariff by a special session of Congress immediately following the inauguration of the next president. 
In all tariff legislation, the true principle of protection is best maintained by the imposition of such duties as will equal the difference between the cost of production at home and abroad, together with a reasonable profit to American industries, but also to maintain the standard of living of the wage earners of this country, who are the most direct beneficiaries of the protective system as they face this election. So they do. They say, hey, look, the Republican Party, we are for revision of tariffs, for reduction of tariffs. But it's not exactly the Democratic position. If you look at the Democratic position, Cleveland, Hancock, Bryan, what they really want to do is tariffs for revenue only, not to protect industries at all. So in other words, just take enough revenue to keep the government running, and the federal government is much smaller at this time. So these are going to be very small tariffs, and leave it at that. The Republican position is, well, we're going to reduce tariffs, but they still want to afford some reasonable profit to American industry. So there's still a little bit of protection there. They're just saying they're going to reduce the amount by calculating how much it costs to make something abroad, how much it costs to make it here, and allow a reasonable profit to the American manufacturer. In a sense, they're saying we're going to avoid excessive duties. And with this position, Taft is, and with the support of Theodore Roosevelt, who's backing him, Taft is overwhelmingly elected president. One of the things that hurts, Brian, and it's not talked about a lot, but you got a, about a half million votes from Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate, and labor's really backing that campaign, and some northern labor is backing the Republicans because their Republicans are making the argument that tariffs are good for the working man. Your factory is going to be closed if we don't have tariffs. And in some cases, they're believing that. Brian wins the entire South, including Tennessee, Kentucky, Virginia. He wins Maryland. He wins his home state of Nebraska, wins the state of Colorado and the state of Nevada. But Taft wins everything else. And that's 321 to 162 electoral victory for Taft. Now Taft is president. I was asked on Quora about Taft. Well, I was actually asked about if there was a president who ever didn't want the presidency. And so I think it would be appropriate to talk about my answer now. And then we'll get more into the tariff. One of the things they mount for the Republican campaign of 1908 because Teddy Roosevelt's so popular, and there's this toy that has come out, the uh, teddy bear. And it's more than a toy. It actually becomes very, very popular, not just among children, but also women will bring teddy bears along with them as an accessory. Roosevelt's not exactly thrilled about the whole teddy bear thing or the name Teddy used to refer to himself. He thought it was very, very childish. So there's a company that brings out... The Billy Possum for Taft. You know, it's a decent seller, but not as good as the teddy bear. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism. 
all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Taft didn't want to be president at all. He wanted to be the Chief Justice of the United States, which later he had a mind for legal matters. He was a good writer. He was a good interpreter. And he was a decent Chief Justice, but he was a poor decision maker and not a very good leader, politician, legislative promoter. He had been an administrator of the Philippines, a military governor, and did quite well there. That's where he got attention. And he became president because of three people, we could say. His wife, Nellie, who was the first first lady to accompany the president-elect in the car for the inauguration. Her father, a one-time law partner of Rutherford B. Hayes, had taken Nellie to the White House for President and Mrs. Hayes' 25th wedding anniversary. Young Nellie was so captivated that she vowed to one day be first lady. And in 1911, she would celebrate her own silver wedding anniversary at the White House filling the mansion with nearly 4,000 guests. Taft's wealthy and powerful brother, Charles Taft, loved the idea of his brother becoming president. A big Cleveland gas company stock owner, he wanted to be associated with powerful circles in Washington and to have that influence. And then the third person, of course, was the current president, Theodore Roosevelt. Tierra had an abound of excitement after getting elected in 1904, promised not to seek a full term. And he couldn't quite go back on those words. So he wanted to put someone in there that he could support, that he thought he could kind of control if need be, or at least would run things the way he did. So he put in friendly and supportive Taft, his secretary of war, successful military government, governor, and reluctantly he took the job. So Taft takes the platform of the Republican Party seriously and so pushes and calls for what they promised in the platform. Let's actually do this tariff. There are some other Republicans, they called them at the time Stan Patters, who want the existing protectionist policy in place. We talked about Reed Smoot of Utah on the program. He has, at this point in 1909, overcome his battle with the Senate, obviously, he has been seated without controversy. Now he's actually a leading player in the Republican Party in the Senate. And he's a stand patter. He's one of those. Henry Cabot Lodge would be another one that are for protection. 
So he calls for the convention of the special session of Congress. They hold it. They comply. But the uh, interesting thing is the Sereno E. Payne, a Republican congressman from New York, sponsors a tariff bill that calls for several reduced rates, particularly aiming at certain food items. Like One of them that they spend a lot of time protecting, so you can see how important it is then as and now in exempting, is coffee. And there is a lot of coffee coming in from Brazil, and it's very popular with American consumers, and so that's exempted. On the Senate side, the bill is authored by Nelson Aldrich, a Republican multimillionaire from Rhode Island. It affects a few downward revisions of the, of the tariff, but it also increases some. And they think that this thing, you know, Republicans are completely in power in 1909. The Speaker in the House is Joe Cannon still. Now, that's not going to be true in one year. He, he'll still be Speaker, but he won't be as powerful. He kind of got dethroned. But in 1909, he's still there, still powerful. They figure this is going to go through fast. But what they didn't notice is that in their legislation, and it's, and it's a difficult thing to pull out, the way the tariff that the Republicans wanted to do worked is they're going to compute what the labor is in America and what the labor is abroad and then make sure that their cheap labor isn't undercutting American labor. But in doing so, there were some senators that didn't find their methods very scientific essentially amounted to protectionism under another guys. One of them is Robert LaFollette, the progressive senator from Wisconsin. Here's what he says in his autobiography. Progressive Republicans have demanded a tariff commission of scientific experts with power to ex investigate and discover the actual differences in labor costs between American and foreign products. We do not wish to have the tariff reduced below that difference. But we realize that we cannot accept the statements of interested manufacturers. Gentlemen may reason upon any line they choose. They may approach the subject from either side. But, sir, there is no escape from the conclusion that labor is the great issue involved. The workers in every field of industry in this broad land are the ones vitally interested. Where there can be shown to be no difference in labor cost, I am for free trade. But the difference must be determined by real experts who understand the limits and the use of statistics. This was my criticism of the last session of Congress of the present so-called tariff board appointed by Mr. Taft. This board reported to Congress the average difference on print paper and wood pulp, but I showed that their average had no meaning at all. It was made up from many establishments, some of which had old, antiquated machinery, which ought to long ago have gone to the scrap heap. In these establishments, the labor cost was excessively high. And we do not believe in protecting inefficient management. On the other hand, by digging into their report, I showed from their own statistics that the up-to-date efficient plants in this country were making paper just as cheaply as it was made in Canada. And for that reason, I was for free trade on print paper and wood pulp. This whole controversy puts everything in a conundrum. They're forced to revise some of the rates. It's still true that Payne Aldridge lowers the general tariff rate from 46% to 41%. But it increases rates on items such as animal hides, iron ore, and coal. It lowers 650 tariff items, raised 220, 
and left 1,150 untouched. And something from the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where I talked about Taft's first year in 1909. And As he saw it, the president couldn't bear down on Congress in the middle of its work. In fact, while Congress debated the tariff reform bill, Taft left it up to Republican leaders and played a good game of golf. Taft said that if it did not live up to the Republican Party platform, he would issue a veto. But indicating what he'd do before the Congress had acted, in Taft's opinion, was not what a president should be doing. It's a very old-fashioned view of the presidency, even for 1909. Indeed, a constitutional scholar, Michael Corsi, writing in Presidential Studies Quarterly, referred to Taft's view of the presidency as Whiggish. He had the view of it perhaps that Daniel Webster or Henry Clay might. Taft didn't see the president as a cheerleader for Congress. Yet when the bill went to conference between the House and the Senate, Speaker Cannon put members on to the conference that favored high tariffs. I could have made a bit of cheap publicity by vetoing the bill. It was as near as complying to our hopes as we could hope, he told a friend. He signed the bill on August 6th. Now, Taft, we know from some private correspondence and what he said to friends was not ultimately happy by what had happened. And it's something that he's going to be judged harshly by. Theodore Roosevelt, when Taft seeks his advice for what to do about a tariff bill, Roosevelt tells him, you know, you've got to go to Cannon and Aldridge. You've got to go to the powerful people in Washington and make a deal with them. But Taft's approach to the presidency was much more Whiggish, and he kind of let them steer, and steer they did into this direction. And that forced, and this is why I think it's always difficult to be a Whiggish president, because eventually it's going to land on the president's desk and you have to sign or veto. And then, the way presidents are judged, it becomes your legislation. So a president that doesn't get involved somewhat early in some form, at least setting standards for what they want in specifics, uh, maybe not always marching down to the hill, but at least setting those basic standards, you know, could be in trouble. And that's exactly what happened to Taft. Those who are progressive, those who are reformers within the Republican Party, thought that they had a friend and ally in Taft. So does Theodore Roosevelt. Now, Theodore Roosevelt isn't exactly a progressive on the tariff issue, as we're going to get into. But in general, Taft's poor performance on Payne Aldridge makes enough progressives angry with him that Theodore Roosevelt now has aligned to the presidency, to the nomination. And this is why the Payne Aldridge tariff is, is one of the most significant in, in, in American history, because it really changed this presidency. It might have been okay if Taft had just signed the bill and said, look, this is the best I can do. It's not perfect. And in fact, let's try to get something else. But he doesn't. He goes on the stump. And it's in Winona, Minnesota, where he makes an infamous speech. It starts out okay. As long ago as August 1906, I ventured to announce that I was a tariff revisionist and thought that the time had come for a readjustment of schedules. He then defends the bill. The high cost of living of which 50% is consumed in food, 25% in clothing, 25% in rent and fuel has not been produced by the tariff because the tariff has remained the same while the increases have gone on. It is due to the changes of con in the conditions of the world over. Okay, so if you're experiencing high prices, consumers, 
It's not the fault of protectionist bills, of tariffs. Okay? Then you take swing at the Democrats. If the country desires free trade and the country deserves a revenue tariff and wishes the manufacturers all over the country to go out of business and have cheaper prices at the expense of the sacrifice of many of our manufacturing interests, then it ought to say so and ought to put the Democratic Party in power if it thinks that party can be trusted to carry out any affirmative policy in favor of a revenue tariff. So he's attacking the Democrats on two things, a disastrous policy and also not really being that well organized. Good, take a swing at the opposition party. So far, his speech is fine, and he's going to leave Winona, you know, having made a great case. Except for this. He adds... On the whole, however, I am bound to say that I think the Payne Tariff Bill is the best tariff bill that the Republican Party ever passed. Now, 1909 is not 2018. His words aren't on the Internet. There's no soundbite. But it's still a time where a pithy quote is going to get picked up from a speech more than other things. And that quote, I think the Payne Tariff Bill is the best tariff bill when reformers know that it went upwards, when it's not popular in the country, is just something that makes Toft look like a bit of a buffoon. He's already dealing with the problem of being overshadowed by the legacy of his predecessor. And now this. But there's another reason why that quote spreads. And that is that one of the things that Payne Aldridge unwisely increases the duty on is paper. The average ad valorem rate on wood pulp was increased from 20.6% to 23.43%. This angers the newspaper publishers across the land, and not a good group of people to anger. And if they already didn't like the Taft presidency, well, now they're not going to like it even more. Now it's a little personal. So Taft isn't liked by a lot of people. You know, the the people that are Stan Patters don't like that this issue was even brought up. You know, okay, it was in the platform. It doesn't mean you have to do it once you won the election. And the people that are reformers don't like that he really didn't cut rates that much and, in fact, increase them. And the people that were fans of TR see that he got bamboozled by Congress and he's not a very good president. So for all these reasons... He's laying the groundwork for Theodore Roosevelt to come back from his trip to Africa and eventually throw his hat in the ring. I close with uh, something from the archive of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, where I talked about Taft's first year in 1909, and we discussed how one day, out of frustration, Taft just walked away from the White House. One day in 1909... When Taft's meetings went late, he intended to have a ride with the president, but ended up having to send the horses away. It was too dark. I'll be damned if I am not getting tired of this, Taft said. It seems that all the job is is to hear other people talk. With his aid, Taft simply walked out of the White House. Hard to imagine that today. He walked seven blocks past the Treasury Building. As Archibald Butt described, not a single person recognized the president. He was like a schoolboy playing hooky, the major said. On the way back, a reporter spotted him 
and the newspapers said he was the first president in 25 years to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. The director of the Secret Service Bureau was not pleased, and Taft would be tailed by the two agents that guarded the White House after that. Nineteen oh nine, the first year of the Taft presidency, was a year of great change. The first radio rescue of a ship had occurred on the high seas. The two bicycle men from Ohio, who first flew a plane at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina years ago, were now selling their first plane to the US military. And that US military was patrolling an empire with possessions as far as the Philippine Islands. The Panama Canal was being constructed, signaling the prowess of America. Ernest Shackleton claimed to find the South Pole, while Robert Perry came within a few miles of the North Pole. The automobile industry in America was booming, and the three main automakers, Maxwell, Buick, and Ford, saw large profits. Alice Hewler Ramsey, a 22-year-old housewife from Hackensack, New Jersey, became the first woman to drive across the United States in a Maxwell Auto. In the Wolf Shipyards in Belfast, construction began on a giant ship that would come to be called the Titanic. And in the Indiana Motor Speedway, the first road race was held, not yet called the Indianapolis 500. The Lincoln Penny was issued. Blood types were developed, while the U.S. Navy found the naval base in Hawaii at Pearl Harbor. A new term developed as radios were used to send a message not just to one person, but all over, broadcasting. Still in a sign that, though much was changing, not all of American life was changing, Nellie Taft had a cow purchased for the White House lawn to provide the family with fresh milk. On New Year's in 1910, the Tafts hosted a party. Despite his enormous size, Taft was actually a pretty good waltzer and delighted the crowd. Yet there would be little to celebrate about in the rest of Taft's presidency. A failure in 1909 to score a real knockout blow and to establish himself as a strong president would lead to the loss of the House and the eventual return to the political scene of the man who had been his mentor, Theodore Roosevelt. It's good to note that eventually William Howard Taft would get his wish and become the Chief Justice of the United States, that is, the, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in common vernacular. And that was a job that he thoroughly enjoyed and did for 10 years. And if you visit Washington, D.C., and you see the steps and the beautiful uh, front of the Supreme Court building designed by Cass Gilbert, you will... You should know that that was the result of lobbying by William Howard Taft. Yes, as a former president, he in effect became kind of a better politician than he was as president. I want to thank you for listening, and tariffs are so... have amazingly, <laughs> become important in a way that uh, they hadn't been as 
important in politics really since the 1930s. So uh, just one of those uh, things that's set up well for my history can beat up your politics. We've talked about tariffs so much. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.